We're doing a series right now uh, through Old Testament book, the book of Nehemiah. Uh, and we are in chapter 5. In chapter 5, each week I've been trying to kind of hone in on a theme that is seen within this chapter that kind of will enrich our understanding of what it means to live the victorious Christian life. And this week we're going to focus in on servant leadership. What does it mean to be a servant leader? Uh, what does it look like? And we're going to consider three facets of servant leadership, and that is the servant leader as an azer. Uh, and if you're not familiar with that word, uh, you've ever heard the word Ebenezer. Um, azer is the word that, that's how you actually pronounce it in Hebrew, like razor, uh, is the word that's used to describe Eve when she is given to Adam. It's a word that's deeply misunderstood. Uh, the word as helper, we're going to think of it in terms of, of lifesaver or warrior even. We're going to consider the servant leader as a mediator, someone that, that stands in the gap and brings the beauty of Jesus to a broken world uh, and brings the brokenness of the world to Jesus. And we're going to consider the servant leader as a cross bearer, one who willingly picks up their cross, one who willingly dies again and again with Jesus, uh, that they might be a conduit of his life-giving grace. There is no resurrection unless there's first death. Uh, and this is a principle that is, that is seen again and again in Scripture. And what we are going to consider is that the greatest joy in our lives is found when we are willing to become servant leaders. A servant leader isn't just the person that's in front of you on, on Sunday. All of us have a realm of influence and all of our lives are leading people somewhere. The question is, is where are you leading them? What is your life pointing them to? How is it that you are um, how is it that you are being obedient to that call to be a living demonstration of a God who is not content to exist without broken people. What a powerful idea that is. I want to begin by sharing with you um, a, a, a piece of an email that I received um, uh, because I think there are times I know for myself in leadership, leading a church is really hard. Uh, there is an emotional weight that comes with it and it takes its toll. And the amount of emails uh, that I've gotten of, uh, that come with criticisms um, can at times feel, uh, can, can feel that sort of incredible burden or people that leave the church frustrated. And it's, there, there are moments where I'm like, Lord, I should not be, like, I should not be the lead pastor. And then I've been watching enough documentaries of churches just exploding because of because of moral failing on the part of leadership that I'm like, I don't, I don't, I just want to do, I just want to draw pictures, maybe tattoo, make some music, and do some interior design with my wife. I, I think I want to stick with inanimate objects. It just seems safer. Um, but, but that's not what the Lord has called me to. And that's, that's my own my own insecurities, just like my, my ego or my pride can get in the way of things, so can my self-doubt and my uh, distrust of God's calling in my life. And 
Every once in a while, the Lord will send me something that's such a gift in a moment that it was desperately needed. And I was just really struggling a few weeks ago. I did this men's retreat. And to be honest, I kind of thought like my message on Saturday night was like this. I'm like, man, that was a disaster. Uh, and, and I got this email, um, and it was specifically about Saturday night. And the man's name was Charles Geronimo which is such an epic name, and the guy's a ridiculously good writer. Um, I have no idea who he is. Um, says, hello, Josh. You don't know my name, and you don't know my face. I was at the Ecclesia Men's Retreat this past weekend, and I felt true need to reach out. In fact, I've been working quite diligently on this message, much to the irritation of my significant other. By the way, um, the reason he said that is because the email was 10,000 words. My book is 42,000 words, or 46,000, so he like, sent me essentially 100 pages. Um, I'm not going to read all 100 to you right now. Um, I just took a couple little snippets out of it, uh, and it's, it was so good. I'm like, I kind of want to send it to my publisher. I think he should be a writer. Uh, he said, your sermon on Saturday finally allowed me to surrender and submit completely to the way and to give my heart unreservedly over to Jesus. It took someone from my world the filthy gutter, a hellborn, a fellow witness to and participant of the perilous depredations of human evil. That's so good. To make it possible for me, you are not just a conduit, sir, lifting Jesus on high. Oh no, my brother. Your purpose for me was clear and I've been thinking for long hours upon what happened and have tried to tell that truth as best as I am capable for you here. First, this truth. I felt the love of Jesus truly for the first time through your preaching. Or at least my heart opened to receive the loving embrace of Jesus due to your guiding sermons. I'm still trying to sort out what happened, why and when. The result was that on Saturday night after you spoke of your life and wept so tenderly and courageously in front of all of us silent strangers, I became deeply moved. I saw my face mirrored in the bottom of the well of your pain that you had so bravely removed the cover for us to look into. You bore your own heart's sorrow in the joy of its redemption showing it strongly, enduring its weight so freely for all of us to see. You allowed for us to witness in open view your true spirit and deepest wounds, weeping with joy and sadness and honesty. I think it was that, the true venerability exposed and displayed, that powerful pain and joy mixed together into that gorgeous human tapestry of spirit so rare to witness in this world. I saw it clearly streaming with bright love from you to all of us, your emotion, experience, and stirring movement into all our hearts. I pray for any man's heart that was not moved in those moments when you wept for your father. I have never experienced something so human, so true, so honest, so good, so familiar, allowing us to share in the deep chords of your sweet vibrating sorrow. I wept as you wept, and when worship began, I surrendered completely and gladly. There stood a lifelong atheist, coward and dedicated citizen of the wilderness with hands raised high and wide to the heaven giving my whole life my whole heart my ocean of pain my rage my deep screaming fear my doubt my excuses my purpose my everything and anything over to Jesus in his way and then I felt myself free fall gladly and with serene blossoming joy in my heart spirit and soul I dove headlong and with conviction directly into the arms of Jesus Christ, the King I now serve wholly. I felt him embrace me, Josh White. I felt him welcome me. 
I felt him tell me that I was loved, and there I found, much to my great surprise, for the first time, I also loved him in return. It's all true. My God, it's all true. Eureka, hallelujah, I have truly been saved. Amen. In those moments, I found the peace I have been searching for every moment of my life. And for the first time, I know what it is to love and to be loved. I have bowed. You have helped me bow, brother. I await kneeling, waiting for my purpose to be revealed to me by my Lord. Man, I just feel like, okay, Lord, I think my mission's done on earth. And I'm going to... You know what I love? And the reason I share that with you is not is some sort of ego boost over my preaching because I don't think there was anything that special about the preaching. What I love about it is that when we are conduits of Jesus, Jesus will work through us in spite of us. And what that man experienced and what he described was not the experience of me. What he experienced through this faulty conduit that is me was the very touch of the Lord. God had a mission. God did the saving but I had to be a willing vehicle in that moment, just as you are called each moment of every day, so am I. Together we are called to be conduits of grace, to be servant leaders that can be a helping hand that literally takes, as he wrote later in the email, it was as if you grabbed my hand and put it into the hand of Jesus. I didn't do the saving, I just did the witnessing to the one who saved me. Come and, come and see the one who has shown me everything I've ever done. And I've, in all of my rabbit trails and convoluted stories, and I broke down crying so intensely, I couldn't get a grip. I thought I was going to have to, like, stop the message because I was trying to talk about my dad's death. And this man met Jesus through this thing. And there was a humanity in it, and then there's just this unbelievably beautiful divine aspect of it, that we're to be supernatural. We're natural, and God gets to do the super part. And that is a powerful thing. And when we consider what it means to be a servant leader, what I want us to understand is that Nehemiah gives us an example that our joy is not found in us chasing after our own dreams, our own ambitions, our own hopes. And it's not found in our desire to escape the world in which we find ourselves today or to cloister ourselves um, in, together as a way of, of avoiding the world out there. No, Nehemiah teaches us that the life of the Christian is a life that is, that is filled with much heartbreak, much difficulty, even striving, uh, but it is the only path to real joy, real purpose, and real meaning. That God has saved us so that through us, he can bring his gospel message to the lost and to the broken. That he can bring them to the center of who we once were. That's why Paul, G Paul writes, Christ Jesus died for sinners of whom I am chief. And I think that this is a beautiful thing. And so I want us to consider this in Nehemiah, the servant leadership, because what we've experienced um, through the book of Nehemiah, for those of you who are kind of new to the series, Nehemiah is a beautiful Old Testament book that follows the return of the children of Israel from um, captivity. They were brought into captivity um, by Babylon, 
Babylon is conquered by Persia, and then under the Persian king, uh, specifically in Nehemiah, Artaxerxes, uh, and his cupbearer, who is Nehemiah himself, which is a very trusted position, an intimate position to the king, God puts upon Nehemiah's heart to go and help the, the, the remnant that has returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and reinstate um, the public worship uh, and a return to obedience to the Torah and to Yahweh. Something that Ian didn't touch on last week, what Ian kind of put the focus in on is that in, in opposition that Jesus has no competition, that, that it doesn't matter if it seems like foolishness to the world, that at the end of the day, obedience to Christ is the only wisdom that ought to, that ought to drive us. Um, but he left something for me to get to explain, which is, is something I've been meditating on a, a lot, which is why would God put it upon Nehemiah's heart to rebuild a wall um, What's the purpose of the wall? Because as the chapter we considered last week showed us that the Nehemiah's wall, the wall that was built by those remnants, was not a wall that actually was capable of keeping intruders or invaders out. It was in comparison to the walls that were built by Solomon and after by the Roman Empire um, it, that were like these unbelievable feats of architecture. This wall was just like, they just took rocks and piled them up and the joke was by the by those who were trying to oppose this work was a fox could could jump on this without the wall falling down i don't actually think obviously that's a hyperbolic statement but i think that they were pointing at something that was true which is what are you thinking what do you think you're going to achieve with this wall it's not going to protect anyone so why would god have them rebuild a wall that couldn't keep them safe why well, I believe the answer lies in the whole reason Israel found themselves in captivity to begin with. Because before they had a wall that actually was a powerful feat of architecture. Uh, and they still fell because the wall was never going to keep them safe. It was obedience to Yahweh and faithfulness to Yahweh that was going to keep them safe. And their disobedience and their turning to the false gods of the surrounding lands is what allow, God allowed them to be conquered by the Babylonians. He actually used a Babylonian king as basically his judgment upon their lack of faithfulness to his covenant loyalty. They broke the covenant, and God allows them to be taken into captivity. So now they're rebuilding another wall, and now they have to know the fact. They don't get to rebuild Solomon's glory. That didn't protect them before, and now the wall's even less, less impressive. This is what is important, and this is what God is calling them to. Faithfulness to him, no matter what he asks. The fact is, is that what the rebuilding of the wall did was not protect them from outside invaders. What it did is it reunited them together in fidelity to the living God, which would set them up for the revival that's going to come. And I just wanna encourage you that we're in a time of rebuilding right now in the church, on a, on a national, if not global scale, at least in the West. This is, there has been a great shaking and now we are in a rebuilding. And there are certain things where it just feels like, man, can we even win? Can, can, is, is the church ever going to, is, can it survive the modern age if the largest religious affiliation in America is actually today the nuns, which 
by the way, not nuns as in Catholics, uh, nuns as in zeros, those who have no affiliation to any religious, religious group, they hold the largest percentage right now, 30%. It's unheard of. It's the highest it's ever been in American history. In 1976, evangelicals held 30%, 36% of, the, of religious affiliation in the country. And we're, we're on the, the quick demise. Um, and it's, an, it's, it's a real thing. However, if we understand our church history, we would also understand that there have been many points throughout the church's history that it looked like Satan was going to win and the church would be snuffed out. And it's always been at that that breaking point, this is, this is what was happening when the Great Awakening happened. This is what was happening when the Welsh Revival happened. There was revivals in the, in the Middle Ages among like the Benedictine monks where there was a small remnant of faithful Christians that God used to actually change the tra trajectory of the world. There isn't any competition for our faith. Social services are on the demise. There was a period... 30 years ago would be unlikely for there to be a parent in the room that didn't have their kid in Boy Scouts. Today, if I was to ask how many of you as parents have your kids in Boy Scouts, you, it's probably like, I think, Evan. <laughs> uh, but that's YMCA, Boy Scouts, Boys and, uh, Boys and Girls Club, all these nonprofits, they're all collapsing as well. Social uh, institutions are collapsing. And what does that leave us? Has the world provided us a better answer than Jesus? No, it has not. Christianity is prone, especially evangelical Christianity, is prone to shallowness when it's left to its own devices. It is good that we have tasted the shaking because like Nehemiah, we have an opportunity now to, to step into the difficulty, into the dark, and discover that we're standing on a rock. And that's what it is to walk by faith. And I think that this is a powerful thing. So now, Nehemiah, we've, we've moved through this reality. The wall has, been, the wall has uh, been built up. There's been this endless serving and, and pushing into this in spite of the opposition. We went from the opening of the book of Nehemiah on his knees in prayer um, and fasting and repentance on behalf of a nation that had turned its back on God. The second chapter, we see, we see what faith in action looks like a faith that works. The third chapter, we see the, the beauty of, of a community, of the family of God coming together around, around a focused desire to honor God, like us following Jesus. He says, follow me. He doesn't say where he's going. It doesn't matter as long as he's the one that's leading. And, and then we see in chapter four, we see faithfulness in, in the face of opposition. And now in chapter five, we see Nehemiah truly rise to the next level of leadership as the servant leader who truly steps in to not just, not just stay true to the mission, but his vision is much bigger than that because he is now looking at the whole land and all the people, and there is an attentiveness uh, that leads us into the depths of what servant leadership is all about. And I want us to realize that that email that I received from that man, we all have people that are there, that are just ready for someone to serve in such a way that the love of Christ can be experienced through your life that might lead someone out of darkness into light. This shouldn't be an unusual testimony in our lives, is my point. 
that Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus' own words about servant leadership is found in Matthew, or excuse me, in Mark chapter 10. It says, and Jesus called the disciples to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the model of Christian existence. So let's consider first the servant leader as Ezer. And we pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. The servant leader as in Ezer, in, in, in Ezer. What Nehemiah is revealing here is that there, was, there were policies in play in, in those that had returned from exile in which those that were ruling, the ruling Jews over those that had less were basically were basically getting great gains from them. They were, they were profiting from them to the point where there were families that were literally having to sell their children into slavery just to put food on the table. In other words, the society, this remnant that has returned, is, it was unbelievably unjust, uh, and, there was, and there was a lack of there was a lack of, uh, of care or concern for those that had the least. And Nehemiah, as the, as the amazing leader that he is, is able to take not his focus off of the task that God has put on his heart, the building of the wall, which we saw. I mean, there's, he was running this thing so intensely. Like, he's not sleeping. He's, they've got weapons they're holding in one hand while they're building with the other hand. Is a picture of just like endless work and also protecting the work that God's placed upon their hearts to do. But he goes beyond that now, and he turns his eyes off of the, off of the, the wall, which is, is, in, is in process, and the, and the other things that he's wanting to see rebuilt. And now he's considering what does it mean to build up the actual people that are here in the land. His eyes are not fixed on just accomplishing the great feats of building up an inanimate object, a wall, but he knows that the end game is a concern that God's people return to covenant faithfulness to their God. And that part of that return to covenant faithfulness to their God is that they understand that God cares about them and their needs. And therefore, Nehemiah shows beautiful leadership in the fact that there is an attentiveness 
two, he sees the whole. He sees the forest through the trees. He isn't, he isn't uh, so, so hyper-focused upon this one task that he loses sight of the whole reason he's doing it. And this happens all the time in ministry. We can become so focused. I mean, I've seen preachers do it. Where we get so focused on preaching and learning how to preach a sermon that we forget that that's probably the smallest portion of what we do as pastors. And then all of a sudden, the thing that you actually should be doing, which is shepherding, uh, it becomes the thing that falls by the wayside. And because the hyper is like, oh, he's become a great communicator, but he doesn't actually have friends and he doesn't spend time with people, which you should always listen to a person that never spends time with other human beings on how it is that you should interact with other human beings. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that Silicon Valley already holds like the, you know, the complete control of what it means to create the means by which we have friends made by people who don't know how to have friends. I mean, we do recognize that our society is essentially, is our, our social media is essentially being built by um, people that are on probably the autistic end of the scale. Uh, and they're the ones telling us how we should interact with one another. Uh, and it's, uh, I mean, that's when I watched Silicon Valley and I was so disturbed because it was funny and then it was also terrifying. Uh, if you've ever seen that show, because it's exactly what it shows, is that all these players that have built up our social media empire are people that don't know how to be alone in a room with another human being because um, it's too awkward. Uh, no, the servant leader is one who recognizes that everything they do is meant to serve the main thing, which is loving God and loving neighbor. Loving God and loving neighbor. The servant leader is one who does not serve to be loved, but serves because they know they are loved. And what I love about this idea of the servant leader as an azer is I want to kind of open up our minds to that word. It's a word that has been deeply misunderstood uh, and has been kind of tossed out even by uh, uh, culturally uh, as seen as some kind of oppressive word uh, that is meant to keep women down and keep men in power. Uh, when we are told in Genesis chapter 2, Adam is alone with God in the garden, uh, and this is on day 6, and there's a strange gap between the creation of man and woman, and it's not because woman is less. I believe it was actually purposefully to make man feel his incompleteness, even with God, all to himself, that we are not complete without others like ourselves. We are not a trinity within ourselves. And so God allows that gap so that humanity feels the need. And God says for the first time in what he has said over and over again that it is good, it is good, it's very good. He created this, it was good. He created this, it was very good. He finishes creation, he saw all that he had done was very good and he rests. And yet, in the middle of the creation story, on the day that he creates man, the first time we're told that God said something is not good is when he sees man alone. And he says this, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And what we need to understand is that Eve was given as, and, and this is how you say it in the Hebrew, it's ezer negdo, um, or as many translations have it, um, it's a help, it's a helpmate or helper. Um, but this is a notoriously difficult word to translate, and that actually is an incredibly weak translation of the word. 
because it's far more than just a helper. It literally means lifesaver. In fact, just as the word shepherd is only used one time um, of man in the New Testament, um, and the rest of the times it's speaking specifically of Jesus, uh, so this word, azer, which is given uh, to woman specifically, um, is a word that is used again and again of God. And this is how you should think of it. It's not a helper as in someone who passively and submissively just does all the little quiet stuff in the background while, while the man is standing in the glory. No, it's the man and woman together. She's taken from his side, not his back. And the two together fulfill the image of God uh, and as they enter into God's, uh, participate in God's kingdom work on earth. They are covenant partners with God. But her role, specifically, there is a distinction in roles, and those roles are different. But we have turned helper into some sort of kind of weak, passive thing, like someone that, you know, like the surgeon, and then you're just the person that hands the tools or something. No, it's this. I'm in battle, and I'm under incredible fire, and I'm going to die. The Azer is the one who comes to my rescue. They come to fight alongside me, to actually enter into the battle. In fact, it actually is a word in the Hebrew that carries with it, um, carries with it military connotations, that, it's, that it is far more than just, just a gentle helper. It is someone that actually enters into the battle. It, it is a word that is a warrior. And if you read Proverbs 31, I mean, let's be honest, guys. It seems like in Proverbs 31, like the woman is like legitimately doing everything. And the guy just is hanging out at the gate like talking philosophy, which I, I don't mind that idea. Um, and I would be lying to say that my wife is not the center of our family's universe and runs my whole existence. So, uh, and she is a fierce warrior that I would actually not maybe one of the only women that I would actually be afraid to get in a fist fight with. Um, and not that I would, because that would be abuse. Um, but uh, she's tough. Uh, so I like this, because when we look at Nehemiah, that's exactly what he is. He is, he is a helper. He is there. He's attentive. What does a helper do? And a, a helper, when we think of it in the terms of a lifesaver, is that they are ones that are like filling in the gaps. They're looking for the, for, for the blind spots. They're, they're paying attention to the needs and the, and, and the wants of others. The reason, I think the reason that there is a cultural pushback against the idea of helper, it's not just like a feminist thing, it's actually a human thing. We don't like, whether we're men or women, we don't like being told that we need help. <laughs> we think we can save ourselves. We think we could, we could survive, you know, it's like that, you're like, I don't need a man to, you know, to be a whole person. I'm like, well, yeah, Jesus was single, okay? Like, and he's the most perfect person ever. But we need one another. I mean, I kind of need, I need a lot of people in order for me to actually enjoy existence because there's a lot of things that I just simply would not know how to do uh, without, without the fact that other people have thought of things. We help each other. And the idea that you are your own, you are your own master. You are the god of your own of your own history. You define the outcome is one of the greatest and most damaging lies ever put forth in human history. 
the rise of the psychological self to the point of, of self-worship and idolization, that we are, by the way, we are an incredibly, we're, people think we're not a religious world anymore. Oh, we're more religious than we've ever been before. It's just that the worship has been turned inward. And, and that is a problem because you can't be a servant leader if your only interest is serving yourself. It will cause you to fall into the despair and the loneliness that marks so much of modern society. No, the issue isn't an issue between men and women. The issue is, is wrapped up with a three-letter word. It's called sin. <laughs> it's, called, it's called a rebellion against God's rule and a rejection of his grace. Nehemiah is surrendered to God's authority that surrender to God's authority leads him to a position and a posture of service to his fellow man. And he is not content until they are tasting and experiencing the goodness of God. I love his taking in of the information that there is an attentiveness. Not only that, but it's also marked by, what does it say? After he hears of what's happening, it says that he was angry. And that anger is a righteous indignation at, at, a, at a lack of at injustice. And, but it's marked by and met with, as we're going to see, not empathy unchecked, because much of our modern age, the radicalization of our youth is driven by empathy that is not matched by wisdom. It's the feelings of injustice are not being met with intelligent and thoughtful um, engagement. It's instead what we do is we put ourselves in echo chambers, we find the voices we like to listen to that fits our particular worldview, and we, and we satisfy our entrance into the various problems of our modern age without any, without any intelligent or thoughtful engagement or even testing why we feel the way that we feel against the truth of who God is and what God has to say about the world in which we live. And it's one of the enemy's great things is to utilize one of the beautiful gifts of God, the ability to feel pain with other people and to turn it upside down on its head where our feelings override all truth. <laughs> and our feelings don't define reality, God does. His empathy is marked by wisdom. That attentiveness leads to care. The care is marked by, by a surrender to God, which brings illumination, and it leads to action. He is the azer in this moment for Israel. He is a helper. And by the way, that word is also very similar to the word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit, who is Jesus calls the paraclete, the helper. And we know that the Holy Spirit does far more than just come along and, and, and help you or comfort you. The Holy Spirit convicts. The Holy Spirit comforts. The Holy Spirit illuminates. The Holy Spirit protects. The Holy Spirit transforms. Help is a much bigger word in the Christian vocabulary than how our world defines it. And there is nothing better than being helpful, friends. <laughs> That's... That should be a kind of a basic desire. Is my life helpful to others? <laughs> so, this is a beautiful word. Women, own it. Azer is a great word. And it sounds like razor, which is kind of cool too. The servant leader as mediator. 
In verses 7 through 13, now we see this, this, this help is now defined into mission and action. And we see Nehemiah step into the role of mediator. He uses his, his influence with the king. He uses his influence um, and his power with the people. And he brings about real change in the society. Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 7 through 13, says, I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have, brought, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Notice, he is not even taking money. He's lending money. He's giving out food, trying to be an actual difference in the lives of this community. And he says, return them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. I love this because he's saying, once again, a true servant leader makes no demand upon the people that they themselves are not willing to do. I am utilizing my own money to provide for the people that are in need. Now you need to do what I'm going to tell you, which is we've got to make this right. And their response shows God's favor upon Nehemiah's life. And Nehemiah, I mean, had to have been a very, very compelling individual because the response is this, and I would say that, it, that there, was, there was anointing is the word I would use. There was God's, the super part, which was God's presence, was clearly, being, was clearly being felt by the people that were in the presence of Nehemiah. And it says, they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. It sounds more like a prophet here than anything. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So here, Nehemiah gives us the picture of the servant leader as a mediator. One who steps into the gap for God, we are told in Deuteronomy, one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is that it says that God hears the cry. He hears the cry of the oppressed, of the orphan, of the widow. He hears the cry of those that are impoverished. God's heart is near to those that are broken. And Nehemiah actually is utilized as like a lightning rod to remind those people in that particular place that the God of heaven was present he knew what was going on, and there, I am sure that Nehemiah's authority and that kind of prophetic tone in which he used is that that mediation is that they, heard, they believed they were hearing directly from God, and this was a warning. You've taken what is not yours, restore it. Be sacrificial. Notice the servant leader as a mediator is calling the children of Israel to become servant leaders. This is what we call reproducing the good, the good character, it's, it's, it's a real mentoring, if you will, and it's a mentoring that comes through action and through, and through illustrating what it is. If we want people to live differently, we have to ourselves say, does my life actually 
does my life witness to this Jesus that I have supposedly put my faith in? Do people see me and see Jesus in me in spite of the broken, glitchy aspects of us? And that's the beauty of the gospel, is that the light of Christ actually covers as well as reveals, as well as it, it conceals, it conceals um, the, the, the faulty part so that people can see God through us in spite of us. And especially when we as a community, nothing is more powerful than when the whole community together is, it comes with an expectation to hear from the living Christ. Why do you come to church on Sunday? What's the purpose? Why are you coming here? Is it to hear a sermon? To get more information? Is this a classroom? Or did you come to meet with Jesus? You know, one thing I have become completely convinced of is that we cannot expect to create catechism, if you will, life-transforming reality and turn people into mature Christians through a 45 to 50-minute sermon on Sunday. That it requires so much more than that. Dallas Willard once stated, uh, and I think it's an overstatement, but I understand what he's saying. And he says, the sermon is the least important part of the Christian life. <laughs> and what he's, he's taking a hit at is the idea that you're not a Christian because you listen to a sermon. You're a Christian <laughs> because you listen to the living Christ. And, that, and you might meet the living Christ through a sermon, but he's not asking you to just listen to sermons. He's asking you to meet with him, to engage with him, and to actually respond to the, to the brokenness of the world in which he has called you to be a witness. Our responsibility together as a church is we come together to be inspired to live out the reality of Jesus. I don't want to be an expert in the things of Jesus but not know the actual Jesus that I'm learning about. I want you to know him. And the servant leader needs to be a mediator that actually helps people get in touch with the real Jesus. That's, I think, our responsibility as a preacher as well as lay people. We all are called to preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified, Paul said. Uh, I think this is important because I am actually more convinced than ever that the most damaging aspect of modern evangelicalism um, and the frailty, um, the fragility, and the shallowness that it's prone to when it's left to its own devices, as um, Gary Sitzer, who um, was the speaker at uh, um, at Lake Tahoe, where I just was. He's a PhD in church history, incredible communicator. Uh, he's in his 70s now. He's went, God took him through the most painful story I've ever, ever heard. I don't know how he survived it, but he lost his wife, his four-year-old daughter, and his mother all at once in a car accident 21 years ago. And he wrote a book actually on it called Grace Disguised, um, but how God, the mystery of God's providence, how he works through things to bring good, even things that he, we, we don't make him responsible for such a horrific thing, but he doesn't mean he's not willing to work through it and bring beauty and good out of it. And Gary has this an incredible heart for the church. Uh, and it took him from, uh, that, that tragedy took him out of just the high level academics into how do I bring church history to life for the person in the pew because we are anchored in this robust and beautiful and glorious history of people that have laid down their life for Jesus. And I love that he brought up this, this reality. He says, listen, I got saved in evangelicalism at its peak, the Jesus movement. He's like, 
but I see the frailty and the shallowness that evangelicalism is prone to because our emphasis is on conversion, not discipleship. And he said, when it, and in this Ijimash, he's like, I see four danger zones. He's like, nothing is more damaging to, the church, to evangelicalism than Christian nationalism. Number two, um, an, an obsession or overattachment um, to charismatic leaders. Uh, number three, consumerism. And then I think, what was the fourth one? Oh, and, um, and the fourth one was um, unchecked emotions. And, and he said these, those, he's like, we need to be re-anchored in this 2,000 year history um, in which we are drawing from those under the umbrella of orthodoxy so that we can actually withstand the darkness of the days and actually make a, a difference in this, in this moment. And that requires mediation, which means that we can't be mediators um, if we aren't actually ourselves experiencing the actual presence of the living Christ. And it means for me that I am more committed than ever to not allowing celebrity to be a motivator uh, for my own job, even here at Door of Hope. I realized last Sunday was the first time I've heard Ian preach in person since I hired him because as my book came out, the offers for me to go speak and this idea, maybe I'm supposed to, I've been here for 14 years, maybe I need to start building a larger platform and bring the message of the cross to the church on a larger scale. And I, and I, and I really believe that it was come from a sincere spot, but I started realizing when the book came out that I was feeling more and more divided and more and more unsettled in my spirit. And I felt this unbelievable pressure because they're like, you need to repost this and you need to be on Twitter and you need to do this. And the more I looked at those platforms, the more I was like, I don't like any of that stuff. I don't like it. I don't want it. I don't, I, and, and I want, and believe me, there's the flesh part of me that you, I want the success, but I don't want any of that stuff. And, and I don't like what it does to me. And I felt more and more disconnected and more divided um, over the last few months since I got involved. So I just made a decision when I was in Tahoe, the light bulb came on. I watched that documentary on Hillsong, Holy Smokes. If you wanna be convinced that the megachurch is probably not the right path forward, watch that documentary. I mean, Hillsong, since, since, the, since the trial around Brian Houston, Hillsong has dropped 50%. And I remember specifically sitting with the leadership team at Hillsong, New York. Carl Lentz wasn't there, but the, the executive pastor and the other pastor was there. And I remember asking them straight up, I'm like, how big is Hillsong, New York? It has only been a, like a few months old or a year old. And he said, oh, we're 16,000 people. I'm like, 16,000 people? And how many pastors are there? And they're like, three. And I, and I, because of the contrarian that I am, I said, well, that's not a church. And he goes, what do you mean? I'm like, that's not a church. You have an exciting worship service, but that's most definitely not a church. And he goes, well, I agree to, I, I, I would agree to disagree. And I'm like, well, you can do whatever you want, but I'm right and you're wrong because you can't shepherd 16,000 people with three pastors. I'm like, if there isn't shepherding, it's not a church. I don't think you can shepherd 1,600 people, <laughs> I'm not sure that we can shepherd 1,000 people. And how many, churches do, how many churches do we have to watch fall? Mars Hill. How many, how many scandals do we have? Like, there's a big one, James McDonald in Chicago, Hillsong. Hillsong's down 50%. The New York church now is 500 people. Um, and it's gonna lose their, they're gonna lose their nonprofit status, which is gonna totally wipe the whole thing out because Brian Houston's father was a consummate pedophile. Um, who abused 
endless amounts of young boys. And so, I mean, it's the horrors of celebrity culture that says that the pastor is, is the one that you are, that's your, that's your link to Jesus. I am not that. I am a fellow traveler <laughs> on the path, on the path to eternity who's stumbling along and I need you as much as you need me and we are to be servant leaders and I'm not leading well if I'm not serving well and I'm not serving well if I'm not here. And so I've made a decision and I told my publisher I'm not, I'm only, I'm gonna cut my travel again in half um, and beginning in the fall, um, I will never be gone more than, more than one, one Sunday in a month um, because I just, I think you deserve more from me. I think the staff deserves more and I don't think it's good for me to be gone because it makes me feel divided. And this is, I think, those kinds of sacrifices which leads me to the final, the final point, which is the servant leader as a cross-bearer. Um, if we're not willing to die to ourselves, I always say, like, ask yourself this question. Do I believe that I am wrong a lot? It's a good question to ask yourself. Because if you answer that question, no, <laughs> then I would say servant leadership is going to be kind of tough for you. Because if you, if you, think, you're, if you think you're always right, like, if you're, then you're going to have some serious blind spots to the fact that you're far more of a mess than you think you are. That, you're, that you can't get close to Jesus and not see actually more intensely the sin and the brokenness and the, and the glitches within your own temperament. And the thing that will make you a good leader is actually your ability to see your own frailty and how desperately you need God and you need others just like everyone else. And that it is together that we actually form the power of the gospel and, and actually are able to serve not just one another, but actually able to serve a city like Portland, um, which God has called us um, to this place to love it um, and to love the people in it and to be a, make a difference. And I love what it says in 14 through 19. Moreover, from that time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years neither, I nor my brother ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Nehemiah is basically saying, a pra common practice then, if you were a governor of an area, it was, you had the freedom to basically decide how much money you wanted to take from the peoples to like support your own lifestyle. And he's like, I took none of it. I didn't take any of it. And what is he going to say? But I did not do so because the fear of God. I'm not going to take from the people when they don't have anything to give. I also persevered in the work on this wall. And we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense, so he paid out of his own pocket, for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. If you want to keep your people happy, you got to keep them drinking. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I just really like that verse. Like every 10 days, we just wine in abundance. 
<laughs> wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Man, I don't know why, but this passage reminds me so much of Paul. When Paul says, I never took, I had the right to ask for money from the churches that I planted, but I didn't, so that I would not be accused. And, and what does he say in 2 Corinthians? One of my favorite passages ever is this. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuaded others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. And then he goes, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The servant leader is a cross bearer because there is no resurrection without the cross. Because the cross is the center that allows us to maintain our equilibrium in the insanity of this world. Because the cross is not only the continual reminder of what it costs God to actually save us, it is also, it is not just a reminder of our own brokenness and our desperate need for God, but it is also the very door of hope by which we enter into resurrection life, which is where we get our name. I will give her the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble as a door of hope. And our valley of trouble is our sin that led us to a place where we were lost and blind and once dead. But while we were yet still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. What Nehemiah gives us a picture of is a picture that the servant leader is one who sacrifices his needs so that the needs of others can be met. This is why Jacques Ellul said so beautifully in Presence in the Modern World, he says the Christian cannot afford to be a spiritual wolf. That is a spiritual dominator. We must forever exercise what it means to live before the world in the posture of the sacrificial lamb. That we need to allow ourselves to be killed, if you will, for Jesus again and again and again. I didn't need to die once with Jesus. I need to die daily with him so that I can live in the power of his resurrection life. And the servant leader is one whose ego is consistently being put to death. That is, I am surrendering and I am dying to the lie of what God did not, did not intend so that I can come alive in Jesus. That I'm not gonna fight him and his call upon my life. No, I'm going to actually surrender fully to his will, but to say, Lord, your will come means I am saying at the exact same time, and my will must go. Your kingdom come means my kingdom needs to be buried. <laughs> because what we really want is actually his kingdom. We just don't realize it. We listen to the lies of the world, and then we can't figure out why we're lonely while we're unhappy, while everything feels so small and insignificant. Because if we remember Chesterton's wise words, how much larger would our world be if we were smaller in it? That doesn't happen without the good death. 
And the good death is dying with Jesus because to die with Jesus is to die with the author of life. And the guarantee of dying with him is life and life abundantly. That's what he wants for you guys. That's what I want for this church, life abundantly. I want you to come with the desire to meet with the living Christ, not to learn about him so that you can go back to your own business, your own kingdom, but that so you learn with me what it means to die to Jesus or die to self so that we can come alive in Jesus, that we give up our dreams because we don't even really know what we want anyway. I'm 50 and I still don't know what I want, but one thing I know for sure, I want more of Jesus. I want more of Jesus, and I want that for you as well. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel and its ability to bring transformation to our lives. And my prayer right now is that we would each examine our hearts and our minds around this question. Am I a servant leader? Maybe we have to ask the first question, Lord, if it's true that everyone leads, what am, where am I leading people to? What does my life lead people to? Does it lead them to me? Or does it lead them to the only one that can save, to the only one that can transform? And that's you. Holy Spirit, we invite you right now to not just comfort, but to convict and to transform and to illuminate that you would be our azer, our lifesaver, and that you would turn us into the same thing as we yield to you. Help us to be the hands that help other hands be placed into your hand. Lord, we want you, we need you, we love you. Forgive us for the ways that we can be so selfish and self-absorbed. The servant who serves self is a slave, but the servant that serves you is the one who is truly free. So Lord, may we live in that freedom. Pray this in your name. Amen.